Hi everyone, I am Janet B from New Jersey, recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Happy to be here discussing actually a couple of my favorite paragraphs in the big book. So tonight we are going to finish up on the fourth step. We did resentments and now we're gonna do fear and the sex inventory. So just a quick recap, um, the way we work through the steps. The first is before we even start working the steps, page 58 tells us that we have to want what this program offers, which is a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, right? A spiritual experience, God coming in and rewiring our heart and transforming us so that the illness of compulsive eating has a, um, a hostile soil and can't exist within us anymore. So we want that, we're willing to do whatever it takes. Then we do step one, we see how we are powerless over food. We go through some exercises to make sure that we really understand how we kind of have a, um, a, a brain that doesn't work quite right as a result of a soul that doesn't work quite right and a body that doesn't work quite right. I mean, in psychological terms, I guess we would be called hot messes. Um, so we see that. Then we do a second step where we do some work to see what's blocking us from God. Because as page 55 tells us, in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God, but it may be obscured by calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. So that belief in God is there. It's just blocked. So we do the work to unblock. And then we get to the point where we trust this God. So what do we do? We surrender which means we just say, God, I'm yours. Because I can do that because at, by this point, I believe God's got my back. It's okay, whatever happens, I'm okay. I'm not alone, I'm forgiven, I'm loved. So that gives me the courage to plow ahead with the fourth step where it says, you know, we start really looking at ourselves and um, how do they put it? They say, if we do this well, we've swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about ourselves. That does not sound like fun. And it isn't always. Um, most people hate doing the fourth step. I personally loved it because I got to write and talk about my favorite topic in the world, myself. Um, that being said, looking to see our defects and our part in resentments generally isn't fun. So we do that. And then we go ahead and we look at our fears. So I'm gonna pick up on the bottom of page 67. Um, anyone have a book and wanna read that paragraph that starts notice that the word fear, someone with good internet connection and a big- I book. will. I can't. Oh. Okay, Joanne, go ahead. Notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer and the wife. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding threat. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. it. Set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Thank you. That, it, that there's a lot of really heavy stuff in there. So it says, okay, fear. Yeah, we've all got it. 
and it says fear is an evil and corroding thread. Now we're used to thinking of fear as an emotion and something that we're kind of a victim of, like, why can't I'm afraid, but emotions aren't evil, right? You would never say that like sadness is evil and corroding, but they're calling fear evil and corroding, corroding, like wrecks, whatever it touches. How come? And it tells us, it says that fear sets in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. Remember how our book tells us our troubles are of our own making? So it says fear actually sets a train in motion. You know, you think of a train at a station that's just sitting there, fear causes it to go. And what's that train carrying? What's the, what's, what are the goods that it's carrying? The cargo it's carrying? circumstances that bring me misfortune. And then it says, but did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Wait a second, I'm responsible for these misfortunes that come as the result of fear. And they say, yes, I am. Well, how could that be? How could that be? First, how could fear bring us the cargo of misfortune, a train full of misfortune? Well, let's think back to our step two, right? It's an interesting step. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Well, why do I have to believe that? If I have pneumonia, I don't need to believe that penicillin could cure me. If someone sticks penicillin in my water without me knowing, I'm gonna get better. Because pneumonia is a purely physically based illness. So it has a purely physical solution, right? Pneumonia, penicillin. But this illness, the base is spiritual, right? We're told in this chapter, once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So believing in God is a spiritual action. And it actually sets a good train in motion, a train that brings cargo full of blessings and good things, right? What do we promise? We will know serenity. We will know peace. No matter how far down or up the scale we've gone, we'll see how our experience can help others. We feel useful. We're happy. That starts with step two, right? Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves, a good power, God, as we understand him, can restore us to sanity. Well, if I've got fear, I'm not really trusting in God. I'm trusting in the other team. You know, came to believe that a negative power will bring all sorts of bad things to my life. We'll have my kids ending up in the gutter. We'll have my husband, you know, die of a heart attack. We'll have, you know, all, we'll have me lose my job. We'll have me, you know, all this bad stuff, fear. And it actually sets things in motion. On a spiritual plane, they are telling us it sets things in motion. So, and then it goes on to say, sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. And I think, okay, how is stealing classed? 
And for me, it makes me think of the 10 commandments, right? Thou shalt not steal. And they say fear ought to be in the same category. Well, I don't remember saying thou shalt not fear on the list of 10 commandments, but I do recall seeing a commandment that says thou shalt have no other gods before me. So if I'm trusting in fear, if I'm trusting that the worst is yet to come, I've got another God before God, don't I? Fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. I mean, stealing causes a lot of trouble, right? It like ends, people end up in jail because of it. But they say fear causes more trouble. Okay, so that, that should be enough to get us to want to figure out how do we get rid of the fears? Remember, we can't wish these things away. We can't say, okay, fear is wrong, so I'm not going to have it. It doesn't work, right? In the chapter of Vision for You, it talks about the boy whistling in the dark. It doesn't work. So it tells us what to do. We get out our paper again, or these days, our computer, and we review our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper or on an Excel spreadsheet even if we have no resentment in connection with them, right? Sometimes it's fear of spiders, fear of growing old, fear of you know my partner dying. And it says, we ask ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? So there's different ways to do a four step. There's you know probably lots of different ways now. And sometimes people write down their fears and the sheet they have says, why do I have them? Am I relying on myself? Check yes or no. And of course, always we're relying on ourselves, not on God. But I heard a way once that for me was really, really helpful. So I'm just going to pass it on. And this is one of those, take what you want and leave the rest. If it's helpful for you, great. If not, ignore it. Um, we asked ourselves why we had them. We drill down. So here's my classic example, and one that really um, helped me tremendously. When my daughter was about mm, 16, I had a fear of disciplining her. I was just afraid to. So one day I sat and I, you know, I mean, I'm sure I did lots of fear inventories, but one particular day I sat, I have a fear of disciplining my daughter, and I drilled down, and this is what it looked like. If I discipline my daughter, then once she turns 18, she'll want nothing to do to me, with me. If she wants nothing to do to me, see, I keep drilling. If she wants nothing to do with me, then when I'm an old lady and my husband and son have died, now no, neither of them are sick, by the way, and they've died, I will be alone on Thanksgiving. If I'm alone on Thanksgiving, I will be sad. And that was my drill down. We drill down to, I will be sad or I will be uncomfortable. And I looked at that and I saw that I was not disciplining my daughter in the present as an insurance policy that I'd be invited to a holiday dinner 30 years down the line. And I saw that was really selfish. And then the book tells me, you know, what to do, right? We ask God, to um, we ask God to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. So here's how I set up my fear inventories. My first column is what I'm afraid of. 
My second column is my drill down and I drill down until I'm sad or I'll be sad or I'll be uncomfortable. My third column, I look for my dishonest thinking. So in my example, there were really two evidences of dishonest thinking. One is that if my daughter doesn't invite me for Thanksgiving, no one will invite me. That's not true. Um, and the other is that if I'm alone, I'll be sad. And that's not true either. You know, as my sponsor says to me, someone can be in prison and okay if they have God. So I look at my dishonest thinking. I ask God to remove it. And then what would you have me be? Or what would you have me do? Now, sometimes people just get, you know, real intense about, well, it says be, not do. So it's not an action. It's a state of being. You know what? For me, it's like, what am I supposed to do? Sometimes it's just live in the day, be present in the day. Sometimes it's do something. And in that case, it's discipline your daughter appropriately and leave the results up to God. Okay. But I want to go back. Um, and I want to read another paragraph that's kind of juxtaposed in the middle of middle here. So we see kind of what we do. We, we put our fear on paper or Excel sheet. We drill down. We look for our dishonest thinking. And then we get quiet and say, God, what would you have me do in, in this situation? And we ask him to remove it. God, please remove it. Isn't that interesting? If I'm asking him to remove my fear, it's presupposing that he's going to answer. And it says at once we commence to outgrow fear, we begin to outgrow fear. So it may not completely go away, but it should diminish. So another um, really glorious par paragraph, page 68, the one that starts, perhaps there is a better way, a better way than having fear. Joanne, can you read, please? The, bottom, the last paragraph of 66? No, 68. Perhaps there is a Sorry. better way. 68. Perhaps there is a better way? We think so. For we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? Thank you. What a beautiful paragraph. And it gives us a formula for life, how to have serenity, even when there's calamity, right? Just to the extent I do as I think God would have me, right? Surrender, do his will and humbly rely on him, trust him with the results. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So if I don't have serenity, I need to look at, am I doing what I think God would have me? And if I am, then I look at, am I humbly trusting him with the results? Or am I doing what I think he would have me, but I have this subtle demand like, okay, God, I'm doing the right thing. Now you make it turn out my way can't do that. 
And then that line that um, has become very dear to me, we are in the world to play the role that he assigns. And I've talked about that sometimes that it's like, we can see ourselves as swimmers in a lane, swimming toward God, and that's it. That's the role, whatever task he assigns me. Other people's business, not my role. You know, other things, the future, not mine. But we're in the world to play the role he assigns. So sometimes in a difficult situation, um, we're to look to see what is our role. And um, I had a very, very powerful experience with this um, about two weeks ago. So my mom and I, we get along, but we were never close. And it was the same with my dad, got along, but not close. You know, when he died, you know, I didn't cry. It was just, I did the right things, but we just weren't close. And I didn't have that emotion. And, you know, so my mom lives not too far from me. And I would go to see her about once a week and call her every other day to see how she was, but no, no real emotion in it for me. I just, um, I just did, you know, I did the right thing. And sometimes that is all we can do. And one day it was about two weeks ago, I was telling my sponsor, like, yeah, I got to go see my mom today. And she said, you sound kind of spoiled. And I thought about that. And I just thought, you know, I'm in, my mom's getting older. I'm in the world to play the role that God assigns. So what role has he assigned me now? Well, right now he's assigned me the role to look after her, you know, to kind of look in on her, take care of her. And I was doing what I thought he would have me, but I wasn't really relying on him for the love. And so I said to him, I said, God, I'm going to play the role that you assigned, but you're going to have to supply the love and the patience that I don't have. And I saw my mom that night and my husband said to me after, well, like you, you seemed like more patient, more loving with her. You know, you just like you were not nicer because I was always nice, but just more there was there was emotion in it and not just, you know, not just duty. About three days later, um, I talked to her doctor because she didn't seem right. And he told me, um, I said, do you think she's heading towards Alzheimer's? And he said, no, she's not heading there. She's, she's in there. She's there. And all of a sudden, it was like, I just, you know, so the past couple of weeks have been a, a flurry of um, a lot of activity, taking care of her. And, you know, we're moving her to an assisted living later this week. And I remember when this first started, um, you know, just thinking like, it's so different now. Like the thought of anyone or anything hurting my mom is like, no, that can't happen. I call her multiple times a day. I tell her I love her and, and, and I mean it. And I have this like sadness that, I'm going to be losing my mom. Like her memory is going to go. She won't. And whereas if you asked me two weeks ago, I would have said, I'll do the right thing. I'll, you know, pay her bills for her, take care of her. But it's not a blip on my, the radar of my heart. And now I'm heartbroken and I'm so grateful. And I think it's just as a result of that simple prayer of saying, God, this is the role 
you need to give me the patience and love. And so now I'm just trying to look, look at it in all areas of my life. I have um, two kids in college. One has come home already. Um, the other was supposed to come home and hasn't come home yet. And I just keep asking, what's my role in all this? When they don't do what I want, when they don't show up when they're supposed to, what's my role? And I think of how, you know, for instance, one of my kids was, um, can be really cranky. And I remember, I think it's in the chapter, it's either too wise or the family afterwards. It says, show him like love and that will um, make the crankiness diminish or disappear. So I said, okay, that's my role to show love and to not work someone's crankiness, their good mood or bad mood is none of my business. So for me, that line, we are in the world to play the role he assigns is really powerful. If I'm not doing that, I'm going to um, lose my serenity. So, okay, enough about fear and, um, and that stuff. We're gonna move on to the rest of the fourth step now where bottom of page 68, it says now about sex. Um, don't worry if any of you have kids who are under 18 listening to this, don't worry, it's, this is very G rated. So it says, we need an overhauling here. And it goes on to tell us um, basically how we should look at it for ourselves and when we're sponsoring. It says one school would allow man no flavor for his fare, right? Very conservative. And the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet, diet, very liberal. When I'm not in the 12 step rooms, I can have very strong opinions on this subject, but when I'm in these rooms and when I'm sponsoring or talking to a fellow, nope. It says we stay out of this controversy. We don't wanna be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. And I actually took the word sex conduct in my book and I crossed it out and I wrote fill in the blank. We do not wanna be the arbiter of anyone's fill in the blank. We are not life coaches. I have no right to tell you what your sex ideal should be. Now, if you have done an inventory and say like your sex ideal is to be faithful in your marriage and you tell me you're having an affair, that's different. But I have no right to tell anyone what their ideal should be. And it says, we all have sex problems. Um, that's just part of the human condition. And it tells us what we look at. We go back and in our inventory, we review all our past relationships. And we look for specifically for selfishness, dishonesty, inconsiderateness. If we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness, and we see what should we have done instead. Very often for me, it was three words over and over, not gotten involved or gotten out earlier right? As soon as the signs were there. Um, and I had used as an excuse, of course, right? That I, I was just so insecure. I needed to be loved. Mm, that's really selfish. That's using another person like as a pill, right? So I'll feel better. We don't, we can't treat people that way. Um, for people who are married, or even if you're not married and want to listen to an awesome podcast, there's a podcast on a sex ideal within marriage. And it's not just about 
don't cheat on your husband. It's about how to live in relationship with someone. And I took pages of notes and I don't think I've ever had anyone listen to this podcast who didn't come back and say, oh my gosh, that was like the best thing I ever listened to. I took pages of notes. So it is on a vision for you. It was on January 27th, 2019 by Gina R. Um, she had done, if someone has the exact um, web address and can put it in the chat, that'd be awesome. She did a podcast with Melissa who talked on step 10 and on, and with someone else. So you can um, have a bonus. You can listen to Melissa talking about step 10. Um, but Gina's podcast was really excellent about how to live in relationship in a marriage. So um, it goes ahead and it tells us that we create an ideal, which is how am I going to be within this relationship? So we do that. And then it just gives us some general guidelines that about our past um, relationships that we have to be willing to make amends. We don't make them yet, right? Because we're not at step nine, provided we don't bring about still more harm in so doing. When they say that, they're talking about the harm to the other person. They're not saying, well, if it'll, if it'll harm you to do it, you know, if, if you'll be embarrassed, you don't have to do it. We don't do if it'll harm another person. And often in relationships with like past boyfriends or girlfriends, if we went back, sometimes we could do some damage. So this is a good time or really um, critical time to talk with our sponsors and get guidance on this. And it tells us um, we treat sex as we would any other problem. If there's a specific matter we need guidance on, we ask God, and then here's a cool promise, the right answer will come if we want it. So in any situation, um, the right answer will come if I really want it. It may not come through the way I expect it. I have never heard God's voice audibly, although some people have. For me, I often get a line of the Bible, a line from the big book, or a line from a song that that is just impressed into my brain. Um, this is why it's so important to meditate so we can hear from God. Sometimes I'll hear from another person. You know, another person will start talking about just the thing that I was wondering about. Um, so we don't want to put God in a box, but we do want to give God a chance to answer. Okay, page 70, they ask us, what if we fall short of our ideal? Um, are we going to get drunk? And they say, maybe, right? So, so it's not true that if we go out and binge, it's always a first step problem. If we break our sex ideal, we, it tells us we will drink or binge if we're not sorry and continue to harm others. So that tells me that not only in my sex relations, but in my whole life, if I hurt somebody, I need to be sorry and I need to try and fix it. And I can't have an attitude of, well, I'll go through life doing what I want as long as I stick to my food plan and who cares who gets hurt. If we do that, we're not going to be able to stick to our food plans. But they say, if we're sorry for what we've done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, 
we believe we will be forgiven and will have learned our lesson. That's how we're supposed to live in this program. We're sorry. We have an honest desire to let God take us to better things, not me to do better. Remember, I don't have power, but God can take me. What does that mean? It means I live the way I think he would have me, pray to get the power and the love that I need and leave the results to him. And it says, if we do that, we believe we will be forgiven. So if we do that, we are not supposed to go around still feeling guilt. Guilt is a waste of mental space and it gets in the way of our being useful to others. If we're sorry, we've gone to God, we've made the amends, we're forgiven and we move on. So they just kind of close up this chapter by saying um, more, a little more about sex. They say, we pray for the right ideal for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity, right? Because this is an area where we can be a little bit insane um, and for the strength to do the right thing. I was so insane that this was obviously way before I was married. I had met this guy and he, I lived in on the East Coast, he lived in California. And one weekend I thought, I'm just gonna go out there and, and visit him, except I didn't know his address. So I, I wanted to go surprise this guy who I was like so in love with, who didn't care enough about me to give me his address. Um, that's how insane we, well, at least I was. We can, be, um, we can be quite insane in this area, but it tells us what we do. We pray and for strength to do the right thing. And then we do more than pray. It says, if sex is very troublesome, and again, we can cross out the word sex and fill in the blank our marriage, our kids, our jobs, something's very troublesome in our lives, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. What does that mean to help others? We think of their needs and work for them. So what needs do the others who are put in my path have? And what work can I do? Not just, you know, a few Hallmark card words, what work? can I do? So it says, okay, you finish your inventory now and you've probably written a lot. You've analyzed your resentments. You've seen that they're futile and fatal, right? If we don't resolve these things, you know, it's grave and puts us in a grave. Um, we've begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. So that's a fruit of step four. By the time we finish step four, if we've done it right, we've begun to learn tolerance, meaning we're, we're able to withstand discomfort a little better. Patience, I don't have to have everything on my timetable. And goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, four, and this is how we can do it. We look on them as sick people or spiritually developing people or fellow humans just like me. And now they don't all go away. So don't, you know, when I went through this, I remember my sponsor saying to me, okay, um, like look at all the resentments and circle any that you still have. And then she said to pray the resentment prayer that's in the chapter freedom from bondage for that person for two weeks. They don't all go away at the end of a fifth step. That's actually at the end of a fifth step. At the end of the fourth step, some go away. I would say by the end of a fifth step, most go away. 
And then we pray so that, you know, with God's help, they all go away. And again, they say in this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Well, there it is, faith actually doing stuff. And why? The way I understand it is, okay, if you were to watch me on a typical day, you might see me going to the grocery store and handing the clerk a credit card and taking away a bag of groceries. And then going to the gas station and handing the clerk a 20, well, in these days, a, a $100 bill to get a tank full of gas, right? That's the currency in the physical world. Imagine a Martian looking down and seeing me do that. He would say, that makes no sense. She's given the guy at the grocery a piece of plastic and she gets like bags full of food. And then she goes to the gas station and hands him this little green and white piece of paper and he makes her car run. It makes no sense. What he doesn't understand is money is the currency in the physical world. Faith activated by prayer primarily is the currency in the spiritual world. Faith is the currency in the spiritual world. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The belief does something. Fear, a negative currency, sets trains in motion, bringing us misfortune. So we wanna make sure our faith is in the good things. So for me, the hard part is with my kids, especially when I see them making choices that I think might not be the best. And I just have to say, uh, I believe that the good work that God has begun in my child, he will bring to completion. I have faith that this is not the end of the story. So I have to do that because my default is, oh, this, this isn't looking good. So I have to, again, use, um, use willpower. This is where we can use our willpower to focus on faith and God. And it says, we hope you're convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. Isn't that a good God? I put up this self-will that blocks me from him. And he doesn't say, Janet, remove it. And then we can hang out together. He removes it. He removes it. How could anyone not want this God who's like this, this wonderful? And then it says, you know, if you've done this, you swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. Um, and then we go on and on Thursday, we will talk about step five and giving this um, big piece of work away to someone else. And then the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful promises that follow when we do that. Um, thanks.